Advent is the season of waiting for God to show up. In our readings these four weeks, we hear Old Testament expectations and hopes for God to come and save his people. We read from the early parts of the Gospels to see the people of God in their anticipation of God's Messiah. And we wonder what it means for us to be in a similar state of waiting as we anticipate Jesus' second coming. It's easy to let our love for Christmas, which, if we are honest, is what we are really waiting for, to influence our understanding of what it means to look for the arrival of God. The quintessential picture of the fulfillment of all our anticipation is not Christ coming from the clouds, but Christmas morning and presents and family. It's not a bad picture, but it might be more Norman Rockwell than it is Isaiah or John the Baptist. Admittedly, the end of our Isaiah passage this morning with its litany of animal pacifism does still provide a warm, fuzzy feeling. We read of various animals that should be at odds with each other lying down together, wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, cows and bears, etc., etc. Isaiah even speaks of children playing near the dens of snakes, presumably because there's no more danger there anymore. But there is something that stands between the peace at the end of the Isaiah passage and the anointed one coming from the the stump of Jesse at the beginning, and that's judgment. I think it's difficult for people who are unoppressed to eagerly look forward to judgment. Those of us who live in relative ease become relatively uneasy about words of judgment because without oppressors to be able to direct God's wrath towards, we fear, maybe rightly so, that the oppressors are us. But the Israelites who heard Isaiah's message had no such problem. They were in exile, constantly under threat of being wiped out. And Isaiah says that the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse will judge for them, the poor, and will kill the wicked, those who are actively persecuting them. You see, judgment can be good or bad news depending on the judgment. When judgment does come, you want to make sure your actions put you in the right, right? I wondered this week if John's preparation of the way of the Lord, his work to get things ready for the coming Messiah, wasn't about preparing a pathway on which the Messiah would walk, rolling out the red carpet, as it were, but preparing the people so that they might turn away from their sins and be ready for the judge to show up. I recognize all the languages making straight the way, and yet when Matthew quotes that passage from Isaiah, his example of it is John the Baptist saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Apparently that's what making the way straight looks like. John also says, The axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Get your act together. Straighten up and fly right, because he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Seems to me that Santa Claus is coming to town might be a better Advent hymn than a Christmas carol, but I digress. John says that his baptism is for repentance, for preparation, but there is one who is coming, and his baptism is with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is one of those things that we experience very differently depending on the context. In my backyard, fire in my fire pit is one thing, and fire in my trees is another. John's work is to prepare the people so that they can properly receive the Messiah as warmth and as goodness, not as judgment. After mentioning the crowds that came out to see him, Matthew's Gospel tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to be baptized by John as well. But his response to them is, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? We might say you did, John. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Why do they get this harsh word from John? What do they get wrong? Well, our clue is in what John tells them. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. John seems to see in them, or it appears to me that John sees in them, presumption, this sense that 
I don't need to worry about what side I will be on when God's anointed shows up because I'm the right kind of person. I'm one of the people of Israel. That when the judge shows up, I know that I will be found to be in the right, to be justified. Now, God's judgment is not my favorite thing to talk about because I've seen it abused and mishandled like a heavy weight upon those who already feel burdened. And I fear that even invoking it might do the same here. So I should be clear, I don't think God wants us to be in the business of constantly second-guessing our status with him as if we need to be always worried about whether or not we're in his good graces. There is, after all, a lot of comfort throughout the New Testament about God's enduring and continual love for us, even especially when we are faithless. But there is a poisonous attitude that can grow in our hearts when we begin to act like spoiled kids who wreck the family car without a concern because we know mom and dad can easily replace it. When we take grace and forgiveness for granted, when we become so confident in our own status as daughters and sons in the family of God that we forget about the God who adopted us in and why we were adopted in the first place, When we look at Isaiah's description of the coming of God and Paul's description of what God's arrival and work in Jesus Christ did for the world, when we look at those pictures, there's more to it than some people avoiding judgment that look forward to the future when God's anger will not land on some people. Now, I often struggle with having a real tangible picture for what glory of God looks like. It's become a word too associated in my mind with Olympic medalists and Stanley Cup victories that when I read it in the Bible, I have a hard time picturing what glory exactly is. I don't know if you experience this, but sometimes I read the text and there's sort of power and glory and majesty and they sort of become a word soup with no concrete reality tied to it in my mind. But I do get a picture in today's readings. In Isaiah, we get that no one is going to be hurt by anyone anymore on God's holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. And in Romans, we read about the church there glorifying God with one voice, that they should welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The picture we get of God's glory on display is that through God's chosen people, Israel, every other people would come to know and walk in the ways of God, and that together they would all give praise to God. This is the picture we get. Now, let me back up the story a little bit here, and by a little bit, I mean a lot. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, the earth goes downhill fast. And after several chapters of horror and despicable acts, God is pained and grieved by what has happened, and he floods the earth. Afterwards, not wanting to let humanity slip again into this cyclical pattern of sin, he chooses Abraham to make into a great nation for the purpose of blessing him and his descendants and then blessing the whole world through them. He reiterates that part of the covenant again to Abraham's children. The whole point of God having a chosen people wasn't just to make some new best friends, but to have a nation through which he could undo the destructive patterns and powers of sin and renew the world into what it was meant to be. It isn't just about diverse worship, as if having different groups of people together is swell. It's diverse worship as a sign of God's undoing of the work of sin moving through Israel out into the whole world. This is why all the nations coming together matters. After Paul summarizes the gospel this way, 
He then proves his point by quoting each of the three major sections of the Old Testament. He intentionally chooses quotations from the first five books in the Torah, the writings, and the prophets, in a, in a way saying that the whole point of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament in each genre of literature is that Israel is to have those who aren't Israel, the Gentiles, brought in. That's why Israel was chosen. Now, you probably know enough about the Old Testament to know that Israel fails in this mission. And so Jesus, the faithful Israelite, in his first coming, his first advent, does what Israel could not do. It all starts with, preparing, with the preparing baptism that John is giving and that Jesus himself participates in out in the Jordan River, which is the very river that the people of God crossed through as they entered into the promised land for the first time. In this moment, or in moment just after our reading, God and Jesus is reenacting Israel's story so that he can step in and do what they could not do. And if we are honest, we would have not been able to do either. But instead of just coming to restore Israel's property rights from oppressors, Jesus does something much more significant. He claims the title of true ruler over the whole world in opposition to Caesar and any other ruler who would try and ask for our or their allegiance. And then right there in Caesar's capital, the Roman church has the potential for being this countercultural community that in its diverse witness was a prophetic message of that different kingdom, a sign and a message to the rulers of this age that they are not, in fact, kings. But as best as we understand it, the Roman church wasn't quite living up to that potential. Paul wrote his letter to a church divided, a community at odds with itself. In the Roman church, there were both Gentile and Jewish Christians, one in the majority, one not, one wealthy, the other poor, and instead of those differences creating a beautiful harmony of diverse voices, those two communities were in dissonance. So if we find ourselves hearing lofty theological ideals about what the church should be and what it can be, and then looking around to see that things on the ground don't quite match up, we are in good company with the church in Rome. Or at least we're in company with the church in Rome. I don't know if it's necessarily good. So what does one do in light of that disparity, of this difference between the picture of the church, the sign of God's reign, and the actual church, a sign of something else? Of the recognition that even among the people of God who claim that they are called to follow his ways, we can still find ourselves to be most concerned with our own well-being instead of the needs of others both within and without. Well, we start by noticing it in the first place. We're taking the first step. You can't repent if you haven't ever been open to the potential that you need to repent. This is what we assume is the, fallacy of the, the folly of the Pharisees in the gospel. And then we get to repenting. We proclaim the need to change. We proclaim the difference between how we act and how we ought to be acting. And we take the first steps to make things right. Part of our self-preparation in Advent is looking inward to see where we are content and proud and self-righteous and to spend some time in the wilderness making our effort to turn around. We all want our preachers to speak hard truths, but never ones that we have a hard time hearing. We'd like Advent to be a season of preparation for everybody else. We want to find ourselves justified to hear powerful messages that point out just how right we are. It's even more fun if someone publicly declares your position in a new and interesting way, so that you can both learn something new, have a model of self-growth, but then still feel self-righteous afterwards. It's kind of like a two-for-one. Like I can pretend like I'm getting better, but really I'm just building my own self-righteousness. That might have been what the Pharisees came out to do at their baptism. We're unsure, but maybe they came to see the unwashed, unwashed masses, those others who were not being faithful to the covenant, go out and repent. 
Perhaps repent of being just too righteous. I didn't, I didn't help these people well enough, God. That's what I repent of. We live in an age of all kinds of self-righteousness that masks itself as love of the other. But it isn't a problem unique to our age. In Brothers Karamazov, the wise Father Zosima shares what he once heard from a man. I love mankind, the man said, but I am amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular, that is, individually as separate persons. In my dreams, he said, I often went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind, and it maybe would really have gone to the cross for people if it were some, somehow suddenly necessary. And yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone even for two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One because he takes too long eating his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of the people the moment they touch me, he said. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. Advent's a season to start dealing with ourselves in reality and not in the abstract. If Advent is a season reminding us that when Jesus comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, an honest look at ourselves does not always fill us with Christmas cheer. If you read our seasonal prayers during Advent, they do sound a bit threatening. And to some degree, fear of judgment is an okay starting point for our repentance. We believe God will expose our sins, and I do not look forward to all of my deeds being put into the light. But it's not an ending point. From there, maybe we can allow the warmth of the love of God to draw us gently to repent, not because we're terrified of him, but because we have caught a vision of his glory, a world renewed and made right with all the nations of the world living in the ways that lead to life. We can read Isaiah and hear how God wants the world to be and how he will one day make the world. And we repent because we've been prioritizing our own petty nonsense instead. Or if deep down we don't really want God to change parts of our lives yet and we cling to that petty nonsense, we ask to want to want that in the first place. We take whatever small step we can. Repentance doesn't have to be grand gestures. Sometimes it is simply acknowledging what is wrong. We look at ourselves and we strive to bear fruit in accordance with repentance, even if the fruit has to start small. But if this sounds like a bunch of do-it-yourself-ism, take heart, we're still a church of grace. God has not left us alone. We find ourselves in a different place than the people of Israel awaiting Jesus' first arrival, because the fire of his baptism has manifested itself in the tongues of fire given at Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit at our baptism. That when Paul exhorts the Romans and us, saying, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of scripture we might have hope. And if we in response say to ourselves, all right, time to be steadfast and encouraged, we can go on and read the next verse. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. We do not have steadfastness. We are not steadfast. We do not have it in ourselves to do it, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves ready, but we worship the very God of steadfastness and encouragement, who we pray grants us what we need and who has promised to give us what we need, oftentimes not always what we want. It's slow and it's patient work, 
But in this season of Advent, when the world is driving us to hurry up and fill our lives with just one more thing, with one more activity, may we find the space and time in our this, when we find the space in our time and in our hearts for repentance, to allow those parts of us that are presumptuous and content and cold to be broken and turned and warmed so that God may accomplish his will for us. And his will is not just to make us feel safe, but to use us as part of his project to make all things new. It is in that project that we find our hope, not just for ourselves, but for the whole world. And I'll close with Paul's own words, his own exhortation to the Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.